This is TSFPN.com, the Sci-Fi Podcast Network. You found the best podcast in the universe. It's August 17th, and you're listening to a special edition of The Secrets. Welcome to this podcast of The Secrets, the podcast for anyone who is serious about writing. The Secrets home can be found at www.stormwolf.com. For the next 15 minutes, we'll talk about writing and how to get you even closer to seeing your name on the spine of a book. Welcome to part two of this special edition of The Secrets. I'm Michael A. Stackpole, author and your host for The Secrets series of podcasts. These podcasts are an outgrowth of my writing newsletter, The Secrets. If you visit www.stormwolf.com, you'll find sample issues to download and a way to subscribe. This mini-series takes an in-depth look at first chapters, what should be in them, why certain things are done, and how best to handle aspects of them. Setting up a solid first chapter is vitally important to ensuring the rest of the novel will flow along the lines you desire. It would be fruitless to discuss first chapters without using an example. For our example, I've chosen the first chapter of my novel, A Secret Atlas, which is a really great book, by the way. It might seem rather self-serving for me to choose my own work for analysis, and I do want to sell lots of copies of the book, hint, hint, but I actually know why I did the things I did in there. Analyzing anyone else's first chapter would be a lot of guesswork, and guesswork you can do on your own. To get the most out of this podcast, then, you should definitely buy a copy of The Secret Atlas. You won't regret it. Or you can borrow it from a friend, or the library, or you can run over to my website and download an audio file of the first chapter at www.stormwolf.com slash sound slash ASA01 dot mp3. Please note, if you choose to listen to the audio file as opposed to having the text in front of you, you won't get as much out of this podcast. There are things you'll see on the printed page that you'll never hear in the audio file, and this stands to reason. The story was written to be read, not to be read aloud and listened to. Therefore, the audio file lacks a bit as a teaching tool. Go ahead and get your reading material, get set, and we'll be right back after we pay some bills. Patrick McLean here with another installment of Interview with the Zombie. My guest today is the zombie formerly known as Bob. Good morning to you too, Bob. During the break, you were talking about your favorite podcast, the Shanaki? Oh, sorry, Shanaki. Tell us, Bob, what makes you such a fan? Variety, quality storytelling. The best podcast on the Internet? That's a bold claim, Bob. Yes, well... Clearly, everyone should listen and judge for themselves. Brains. Good idea, Bob. I am a little hungry. Can we get some brains in here? One last question, Bob. Where can people get this wonderful podcast? Oh, how? iTunes, under Shanaki. That's S-E-A-N-A-C-H-A-I. Or at goodwordsrightorder.com. Well, that'll do it for today's interview with the zombie. Until next time, this is Patrick and Bob saying, I couldn't have put it better myself. Welcome back to the second installment of this special report, First Chapters. We'll pick things up at the top of page four of A Secret Atlas, where we get a description of Maraventolo's clothes. 
That's there for color and to fix the fact that folks wear Asian-style robes with embroidered crests that are significant. Moravin also recovers his sword from the boy, Dunos, and is ready for action. Which is when the grandfather begins to recall that on his first journey, this was the very spot where highwaymen accosted the pilgrims. And, lo and behold, highwaymen appear. A giant with a mallet, an archer, and a swordswoman. Moravin notes that this place has long been a site where highwaymen rob folks. Here, significantly, Dunos picks up a rock and announces, I'll fight them. If readers had not already decided they wanted the boy to get healed in the capital, that should seal it. His courage there really makes him admirable, so most folks want to see him succeed. In a just world, he would be rewarded for being so brave, but it's vital for a writer to recognize that he gets a lot more impact out of frustrating reader expectations than fulfilling them. This doesn't mean that Dunos won't be rewarded, but the obvious reward is for his withered arm to be made whole. All the readers see that and want it, which means that if the writer gives them exactly that, the readers really don't need him anymore. Never give the readers what they expect, and certainly don't give it to them quickly and in one lump. Think in terms of growth and progression instead of a present. Think career instead of payday. Or, if you will, once you have the reader hooked, play him before you bring him into the boat. Middle of page 5 has Moravin stepping forward to defend the pilgrims from the highwaymen. This is an important event for two reasons. The first is obvious. This is a fantasy novel. He wears a sword, so we know there's going to be action in it. Providing some action here confirms the nature of the novel. Readers who want action are rewarded, after a fashion, yet are left wanting more. It should be obvious that in any novel, action needs to be elevated as things go along. If Moravin were to face a hundred highwaymen and cut them down, then any threat below a hundred highwaymen would not be a threat at all. Again, a writer has to think about progression. Now, at this point in the book, I had no idea what else Moravin would face further on. But I did know it would have to be more and different. So I used this first fight to set a sense of how good he was and his approach toward fighting. Moravin announces that he is Shidanzu. It's a made-up word and fantasy novels are chock full of them. In the return dialogue, the swordswoman is contemptuous of him and refers to him as another wandering meddler. The reader can intuit that Shidanzu probably means wandering swordsman, doer of good deeds, and he'd be right. Moreover, he feels smart for figuring that out. The swordswoman goes on to note that she killed another Shidanzu, and this was someone Moravin knew. His assessment of her skills determines the level of threat she presents to him. Then he announces his name calmly, and the name of the sword school where he learned his skill. She dismisses this fact, and he corrects her impression by telling her who his swordmaster was. Her reaction, which betrays a hint of fear, begins to establish how good Moravin might be. It does a lot more, too. Throughout this opening exchange, we have both warriors stating their qualifications for battle. We learn that folks go to schools for swordsmanship and are proud of them. We learn more about how the crests on clothes can identify people, and we learn that swordsmen have discernible ranks, though we don't know what Moravin's rank is right at the start. This is a lot of information about the world, and yet some questions remain. How good is she? How good is he? Who will win their duel? When she reacts, he replies to her, I am somewhat older than I appear. His comment immediately begins murmuring among his companions, but the reader is given to check his mental impressions of Moravin. How old is he? He seems to be in his mid-forties. If that's wrong, why? 
This leads us into page 6, and the second reason for the battle here. Pevyinti still wants to fight and says the battle should be to the death. Moravan agrees and tells her to draw the circle. Three things immediately happen. She stops short. The pilgrims gasp, and Duno shouts joyously before his father can clap a hand over his mouth. We know something serious is going on here, but that's at conflict with the innocence of Moravan's reply. The reader is left wondering what is going on, and then, in the rest of the paragraph, everyone is retreating or taking some other precaution against magic, all based around circles of some sort. Pevienti's companions immediately attack Moravan, and at this point the reader knows that A. Moravan is a lethal threat, B. is tied up with magic somehow, and C. is going to be making some highwaymen wish they'd reconsidered career options. Because of Pivinti's reaction and Dunos's shout, the reader is expecting something pretty spectacular. And it probably involves making highwaymen into jigsaw puzzles. But, as I noted before, if the writer gives the reader exactly what they want, they don't need him anymore. At this point, everyone knows this guy is good. Now it's a question of just how good. Splashing blood around and hacking folks to bits says very good. But I wanted to show he was even better. Exactly how that was done will follow in the next segment. Hi, this is Dave Shepard of The Word Nerds at thewordnerds.org, and you're listening to The Secrets. Thanks for coming back to First Chapters. Moravin's fight with the two highwaymen takes less than a page. The reader's all primed for him to slice them to ribbons. In keeping with the idea of frustrating reader expectations in order to exceed them, Moravin doesn't even bare his blade. Almost casually, he dodges arrows in flight, and the ability to dodge arrows is pretty cool after all. And then he goes after the giant. With the blade still in the wooden scabbard, Moravan deals with the giant. Using the scabbard alone, he disarms the archer. This leaves him with his sword bared to deal with the swordswoman, and the reader still expects him to slice her up. He refrains, however. She's already prostrated herself before him, acknowledging his superiority. While he's clearly within his rights to kill her, he doesn't. So, without so much as drawing a drop of blood, he showed himself to be significantly better than those he faced. More importantly, we still don't know how good he is. Moreover, we didn't see any magic employed, so the reader can still wonder what that's all about. What Moravan does next with the swordswoman reinforces his superiority. He puts her through her paces. He has her show him her mastery of swordsmanship. He also determines that she's not hopelessly asocial. She did return to the family, the sword of the man she'd slain. In essence, he satisfied himself that she had skill and is redeemable. He shows her mercy and gives her a series of tasks to perform. He's plotted a course for the rest of her life, and she agrees to follow it. He also convinces her companions to leave the country, or he'll be forced to kill them. And here, as one of them objects, we plant some seeds. The bandit notes that out west there are Vuruk and Soth there, and wild men. No one knows what any of that means, but it establishes there are more than men in the world, and some of the other creatures should be feared. From there we go on to the last page of the chapter, and some questions get started that won't get answered unless the reader delves further into the book. First, Moravan tells Pavienti to head south, where she will train and then become a Shizanzu, as he was. The reader has to wonder if she will do it, and if she will ever be seen again. Second, Dunos asks if Moravan is really a mystic. His father immediately asks Moravan not to be offended by the question. He addresses Moravan as master, 
picking up on the term Pavinti had used when displaying her abject terror of Moravan. The very term mystic suggests magic, and magic clearly inspires fear, enough fear to override the warm feelings they'd had for Moravan before. Third, Moravan is very kind to Dunos. He crouches, getting eye to eye with the boy, showing him respect. He regrets not being able to use his magic to heal the boy. We learn then that his magic may be powerful and worthy of inspiring fear, but it is not omnipotent. Moreover, as lethal as he is, he regrets he cannot use his magic to heal someone. This is not typical of most sword-swinging heroes in fantasy, but it is in keeping with his reluctance to draw blood in the fight. Fourth, and most important, we have the setup to the hook. Matut asked Moravan to remain behind for a moment. The old man recounts the previous encounter and how a swordsman in their company had asked the highwaymen to draw a circle. The swordsman had then slaughtered them all. They both agree that would be something that would be hard to forget. The old man then says that if his eyes were good, he could see that Moravan was the same man. He asks why he did not slay them this time. Moravan replies that the events of the previous journey were hard to forget, and he notes, I haven't forgotten, and I have learned. So, boom, all in one tiny paragraph, we learn that Moravan Tolo, who appears to be in his 40s now, appeared to be in his 40s on the first trip, 81 years ago. He's a minimum 120 years old and is moving without the aid of a walker. In fact, Matut is 40 years younger than he is, is stiff with arthritis and half-blind. It's pretty clear that something weird is going on here because men don't live to be that old normally and certainly aren't that vital. The reader can't know exactly what's going on here and that sort of puzzle is enough to send them reading further into the book. In just a moment we'll come back for the last segment and go over a variety of things that flow out of this chapter. We're back with another exciting installment of Interview with a Zombie. My guest today is the zombie formerly known as Bob. Bob, before the break, you were telling us about your love for the sci-fi podcast network, tsfpn.com. Why, yes, Bob, it certainly does have something for everyone. Well, of course you're a busy zombie. I mean, who isn't these days? That's why you're glad TSFPN has collected the best in podcasting all in one convenient place. Brains. Not until after you've finished your interview. Well, there you have it, folks. Straight from the zombie's mouth. TSFPN.com. The place for out-of-this-world entertainment. Welcome back to this last segment of First Chapters. We've covered the things that are built up in that chapter, but there are a few more points to go over. Some things were not in the original draft of that first chapter. In fact, the chapter as printed is the third draft. In the originals, I had far too many of the made-up words. I was dumping too much information in there. That happens when you've been developing the world and have a lot of cool stuff you want to share. A novel, however, is not a foreign language lesson, so in subsequent drafts, I trimmed back to what I felt was absolutely necessary. That boiled down to three terms, each of which was defined in context. There were a couple of things that also got tossed into the chapter in later drafts. Most specifically, Pivienti's mission to the south was added after I figured out what her role would be in Cartomancy, the book's sequel, which is due out in the spring of 2006 from Bantam Books. In the original, she was just told to head south, but I got a lot more specific since I wanted her in a place, a very specific place, for the next book. 
Until I made the decision that she would be in that book, however, specifics weren't necessary. I always had a feeling I would use her again, but I didn't know where until planning for the next novel. References to healing and Dunos's deformation were not in the original. In the first drafts, he was just a normal kid. Deforming him opened up the possibility of healing. It allowed me to touch on how wild magic hurts people, as is seen further in the book. Also, his connection with Moravan plays a part later on in Chapter 15, which was also not in the novel's original draft. The simple expansion of Dunos as a character made him real enough that I had him reappear in the second novel, and he'll continue into the third. That's one of the coolest things about writing. Sometimes a throwaway line or a character will take on significance and change the entire nature of the book. It's not something you can foresee, but it brings a lot of life to the books. Sending Pavienti's companions out west was intentional. I did want them available as characters in the future. Their fear about the west and the things they found there hinted at how nasty things are. Their fear of Moravan suggests he will find them out there later on. I'd actually not made a decision as to whether or not he'd find them and kill them at that point, but I wasn't against it. As it was, they did not show up again until Cartomancy. Serion Jatan, the sword school, is mentioned and plays a part in the story several chapters later. That was intentional, though in a subsequent draft I added another chapter dealing with Foyin Jatan. The Lady of Jet and Jade was there from the start. The name alone is colorful enough to warrant its inclusion. The suggestion that she's a courtesan tells readers something about the world. When writing the first chapter, I had not realized who she would become or the role she would play in the book, but I wanted her there to make the world more exotic. Once she was there, however, like Dunos and Pavienti, she took on greater significance. The towers in Moriandi are mentioned, and through the balance of the book, they are significant as well. Moriandi is described as being the most grand city, and I wanted it to be impressive. This gave me an easy contrast for other cities portrayed throughout the rest of the series. Making a strong impression what is normal, new, and desirable means that everything else is compared to it, so picking that ground zero point is very important. So the question that remains after this analysis is simple. Does chapter one of A Secret Atlas fulfill the requirements for a first chapter? I think it does. It introduces one core character and a few others we'll see later. It introduces a sense of the world and the story, both of which will be built upon going forward. A core conflict in the world, respect for and fear of magic, also is introduced. Grander conflicts, like the politics that characterizes much of the novel, isn't in here, but is built upon events that get back to the core conflict about magic. As the books move forward, many characters will be touched by the discussion of magic, so when all is said and done, the problems introduced here will be a thread that unites the whole series. Finally, it does ask questions that cannot be answered without further reading. The fates of Moravan, Dunos, and Pivienti are still wide open. The question of what the celebration they're all heading up to is, is unanswered, and how it will go is also open. Why people fear magic, the nature of the cataclysm, and why the West is so dangerous, and why Moriandi has grown so much, also need to be addressed. Ultimately, first chapters are an invitation to read further. Think of it that way. The first chapter is the portal into your novel. Make it inviting, make it interesting, and readers will follow. Good luck with your writing. This podcast is copyright 2005, Michael A. Stackpole. Please come to www.stormwolf.com where you can find out more about the secrets.
See you in a couple of weeks.